This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from our lead pastor, Frank Coulter. And it says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That we are going to be facing stuff. That we, um, there's going to be things in this life, in the world that we live in, that's going to be a struggle, that is going to be a difficulty. But the scripture says what? The Lord delivers us out of them all. So this should be our mindset in these times when we're facing stuff, that God is going to be delivering us. Now, last week we read the great redemption chapter in Isaiah 53, and as Isaiah was looking forward to the cross, what was going to be accomplished on the cross, we read all about that. But we're going to read this morning uh, from Jesus talking about his own ministry as he reads from the prophet Isaiah, making a declaration about his life and ministry. And we know um, from the Gospels what Jesus' life and ministry looked like, but we can see how he talked about it before it happened. So let's turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So all of those things that we see Jesus talks about himself, we know those were the markings of his ministry as he walked the earth, that there was liberty brought to people, and there was the gospel preached, good news. And then the year of the Lord's favor, everywhere Jesus went, and then he came in contact with people, we know that good things always happened. We always saw God's favor and God's liberty at work. So he's there with this group of people in his own hometown, Nazareth, where he was brought up. And the story continues, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, they had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. The Old Testament had prophesied about the coming Messiah and what he would do and what he would look like. And like, as we mentioned, Isaiah chapter 53, all of the things that the Messiah was going to do. And then Jesus reads about the Messiah and then he sits down and he basically says, it's me. I mean, it's like the ultimate mic drop. I mean, it's like, hey, I'm the Messiah. Boom. And then they're all looking at him like, um, but we know you, Jesus. The story continues here. It says, um, uh, verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Hey, we know you're thinking maybe you're the Messiah, but aren't you just the carpenter's son? Aren't you just kind of a nobody? You really haven't done anything special to this point in your life, and now you're saying you're the Messiah. You're just sort of Joseph's son. And then Jesus responds, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. In other words, do something amazing here. 
what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and the great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus references two people who got helped in the Old Testament with these prophets, these two prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And he said that there was a bunch of people who were struggling in and around the time when there was this one widow there and then Naaman who was a leper and these two prophets, but no, they didn't get sent to anybody else or nobody else got helped except these two people. So I always love these two stories, and we're going to look at these two stories today, and we can find out something about their stories, because these people had difficult circumstances. They needed healed, and they needed to experience God's wholeness. So let's look first here at this uh, widow. She's found here in 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 17, and we can read about her story. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him talking about Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Let's just pause for a second. Here is this prophet, and in this time that we just read there, in reference to what Jesus read, for about three and a half years, there had been a drought. And in in that time, obviously, when there was a drought, there was nowhere to get food. Now, you know, we hear about droughts in different places, uh, living in North America, and there's a drought somewhere that provides us a certain type of food, and so we just buy it somewhere else. Uh, if there's a drought in the world, it actually doesn't affect us, so it's hard for us to understand what this widow was experiencing. But when there was a drought in that time, there was nobody coming to help you. There was no planes flying in with assistance, and there was, uh, you know, nobody getting on a boat and bringing stuff to you and you couldn't buy, you couldn't go to the local grocery store and buy food. You had to grow your own food. And so here this woman, she was a widow and the scripture says that Elijah was sent to a widow. Now, why did God send Elijah the prophet to a widow to get fed, to get help? Wouldn't it make way more sense if whatever the, whoever the rich person was in this region, hey, let's send the prophet there because he's going to have some resources and he'll be able to, you know, feed Elijah. But here God is sending uh, Elijah to this widow. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I might, that I might drink. And she was going to bring it, and he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Verse 12. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Now this woman is not in a good place. Not only is she not in a good place circumstantially, uh, her husband has passed away and now she has a son and they're in a famine um, and then they sort of have the last little bit of flour, just enough to make some sort of bread or cake or whatever the case may be. 
and she's got these terrible circumstances, but then she's in this place in her mind, this place of despair where she's like, we're just going to make this little bit of stuff. And then what's going to happen after that is we're just going to die. That's it. It is all over. And how you would describe this mentality, it's just a place of despair, a place of quitting, a place of giving up. And we can face some stuff sometimes where we just kind of feel like we don't know a way out or the difficulty. We just feel like we want to give up. And this is what negative circumstances are designed to do. They're trying to get us to quit, to give up. But there was something in this woman's heart that God had sent Elijah to this woman to make a difference in both of their lives. She's there and she's a widow, terrible circumstances. She's going to bake her last thing. And then she's saying, basically, me and my son are going to die. It's kind of all over. Now listen to verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Man, these preachers. They're just always wanting our money and our stuff. <laughs> Can you believe it? This is her last little bit of stuff. Her last little bit of supplies. And he's saying, hey, I know you need to make something for, for your son. And you, but I tell you what you should do. You need to make something for me first. Now, is Elijah just being selfish? Is Elijah just being sort of greedy here in this moment? Or is there something bigger going on? Here, she's in this really bad place. She's in this place of despair. And if you've ever been in a place of despair or a place of severe depression, you know what's going on on the inside of you is basically you are consumed with your own circumstances. You're consumed with your life. And if you're just looking at yourself and your own negative situation and maybe your shortcomings and this went wrong and this isn't right, that can be really depressing. Can it? All the stuff that's gone wrong, all the stuff that's happened to you, all the bad choices you make, if you just look at yourself over and over again, it's just kind of a depressing place. But what here Elijah is doing and God is doing through Elijah, in this moment when this, when this woman is at a place of desperation, that God through Elijah is actually asking this woman to think beyond herself. And if we can do that, if we can make this a practice in our lives when we are facing desperation and we are facing difficulty and all we can see is ourselves, in those moments, it would be actually very healthy for us to think, you know what, who can I help? Somebody has actually got it worse off than me. Somebody actually has it more difficult than me. And especially those of us here you know, in North America, you know, we complain about all the stuff that we have. You know, we complain the fact that we might have to take a bus or we might have to borrow our parents' car uh, to, to get somewhere. Do you know that we are some of the richest people in the world? Did you know that? Did you know that you are rich this morning? You are. You are part of the top 10 wage earners in the world. Even if you have a part-time job and you're in high school. Top 10. You made it. You're rich. And, but we can start to look at our own circumstances. And we can start to look at our own situations and get so self-focused that we can never see anything beyond ourselves. But here what God through Elijah is asking this woman to do, and if we think about the picture of generosity, what does it look like when we become generous? We have something and then we're opening our hands to give it to somebody else. 
we're opening up ourselves and our hearts and we're going to give something to somebody else. And what do we know about God who has already blessed us and given us what we have? When we open our hands to be generous, God actually gives something back to us to bless us. And then we have something else again to be generous with. And we're opening up our hands to give. And then God is putting something else in our hands to bless us. And then part of that is for us to open up our hands again to be generous. The great cycle of generosity that God is calling us to be a part of. And this is what's happening in the story. Not just some, you know, greedy preacher. And then he's, you know, asking her for her last meal. That he's actually trying to get this woman to open up and see beyond herself so that he can open her up to generosity so then God can actually bless her back. Let's see what happens in the rest of the story. Verse 13, or verse 14. And thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, God is going to sustain this woman supernaturally in this moment of generosity. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she, and she said, and he and her house, sorry, and she and her, she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. So God sent Elijah to this widow who was struggling, having a difficult time, didn't send him to the rich person, sent him to the, widow, to the widow. And in those moments, both of them had their needs met. God was able to bless both of them in a moment of generosity. So we want to be able to, in our lives, when we find ourselves in these circumstances, we find ourselves in this moment of despair, this moment of inward looking, that we can actually look to meet the needs of someone else. And this was a story that Jesus emphasized, that God had sent the prophet to this woman. There was something in her heart. There was something already there that God knew that he could get his blessings to her because he could get his blessings through her. The second story that Jesus referenced was about the healing of Naaman. Now, this is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, and this is one of my all-time favorite Bible stories with a thousand other Bible stories, but I just love this Bible story. And so 2 Kings chapter 5, let's read about Naaman. 2 Kings 5.1, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given, him, given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. This man had great respect as a military leader, had, had great, accomplished, great accomplishments. But he had this one difficult situation that what? He had leprosy. And lives can be like this sometimes. We can have the greatest achievements in a certain area of life, whether professionally or in our family, and then maybe in the other area of our life, we're actually struggling with the difficulty. We've got this thing, and we're celebrated, and we got the gold, and it's going well. But here in this other part of my life, we're actually struggling. It's really difficult. And this is Naaman's story. Tremendous military leader, but he has leprosy. Verse 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
So they had basically taken a prisoner of war, and this one girl became a servant in Naaman's household. Verse 3, she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So he's, she is telling um, Naaman's wife, Hey, all you need to do is get Naaman with this prophet in Samaria, and you know Naaman's going to be healed of his leprosy. So verse 4, So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman is such a big shot in the Syrian army that he can actually go directly to the king And he said, you know, there's this little girl working in our house. And she's saying there's a prophet in Samaria who can heal. So I tell you what, we're going to get some gold together, some silver. We'll get some changes of clothes. And we'll send it to Israel as a gift. And you send it with this letter. And just let him know that I'm coming to get healed. So, I mean, this is like a national thing going on between these two countries, you know, and your king is going to talk to my king and we're going to work it out together and I'm going to come and we're going to give you an exchange of stuff and in exchange for all of this stuff, I am going to get healed. Sounds like a really good plan, right? Um, Verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. Now, I always love this in the scripture when we read this because, you know, they're so emotional. I just love the Jewish people. You know, and they're just like, wow, they're doing like, you know, the Incredible Hulk and all of their clothes are coming off. And I guess it's a thing. I, it seems like a good idea. I don't know if you're angry. Um, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he was seeking a quarrel with me. So here is what the king of Israel is thinking is this is just a ploy. He's just, he's just sending Naaman over and I'm not going to be able to do anything for him. And he just wants to get into a fight so he can come and we can be at war together. And he's torn his clothes. Um, verse eight, but when Elijah, the man of God, hearing that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, word gets around when you tell your, when you tear your clothes, you know, he said to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. He's like, let him come. No problem. Verse 9, so Naaman came with horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So what did Naaman do? He came in his chariots and horses. Now, if this were today, you would, we would think of limousines, right? There would be like, you know, this, this bunch of limousines rolling up to Elijah's house and they would be bulletproof glass and they would have Syrian flags on the front, and there'd be a whole entourage of people coming with Naaman. And when they arrive at Elisha's house, you know, there's going to be like secret service looking guys, you know, with stuff in their ears, and they're going to make sure it's clear. No one's going to take Naaman and make sure it's, I mean, this is a big deal. These two countries are just making something happen because Naaman doesn't want to have leprosy anymore, and he hears there's a prophet in Israel. So he arrives at the house. And then what happens? He sent a messenger out. I mean, he's not there to meet a messenger. He's not there to meet a lowly messenger. He's Naaman. 
a general. It's got respect. So he gets there to Elijah's house. And then out from Elijah's house walks a messenger. Hey, are you Naaman? Yeah, Naaman. Uh, The prophet says to go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And I guess you're going to be healed or something. I don't know. Back to the house. A messenger. There's flags on his limo. You don't send out a messenger to talk to Naaman. He's a big deal. Verse 11. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So this is what was going on. This was the movie that was playing in Naaman's mind, the whole way driving in his limo on his way to the prophet's house. He's thinking this is what's going to happen. He's going to arrive. He's going to roll up. He's going to get out of the limo. And this is what he was imagining. Out of Elisha's house, you know, Elijah's door would fly open. There would be nobody there, just automatic doors, right? And there'd be a light shining behind the prophet with a little bit of haze, like our haze on our stage, like haze rolling out. And he would have like a white robe on. And he was going to walk stride towards Naaman. And what was he going to do? He was going to wave his hands over the leprosy. And he was going to be cured. And none of that happened. And what was Naaman? He was angry. He was offended. Have you ever been offended? (laughs) Come on, you're in church this morning. Not supposed to be lying. Have you ever been offended? Yeah. Here's another question. It's another fun question. Have you ever offended anyone? Well, not on purpose, of course. Naaman was offended. Now, this word offense, one of the definitions of it is means to stumble. Now, when we, we would think about sin, that we would fall into something that we would choose. The scripture, you know, says that sin is like something we would stumble into. And that would be, you know, something based on our desires. And then we would miss the mark and we would stumble. It would cause us to stumble based on our desires. And then we would sin. But this is a different type of thing. This is something else that somebody puts in your way, and then you stumble over it. Somebody, not just a desire of yours, but someone does something to you that you didn't expect, or they don't do something that you expect, and you're offended. Now, I have offended people in my day. You know, uh, as a pastor, sometimes... You know, you make choices and you do things and you kind of, you know, kind of think, hey, this is a good idea for the church. And then you make a choice and you do something and then it really causes negative ripple effects. You know, many years ago, uh, before we were in this building, you know, I made a choice um, to put someone over the leadership of a team that I thought this is going to be great. This is going to be exciting. And then uh, come to find out that the, someone else really got bothered. They thought that I should have chose them um, to, to be leading this team. And then, it, you know. It just didn't go well. Let's just, long story short, it just didn't go well. And I had offended this person unintentionally. I was just making a choice and doing this, that, and the other. And this is what can happen to us. 
we can get offended by someone else and we stumble over it. And a lot of times what happens to us when we stumble over something or somebody says something or somebody do, doesn't do something that we want them to do, we are stumbling. And then a lot of times our choice is because someone has done something when we know they shouldn't have, what do we like to do? We just like to get a team together to be offended with us. I know my mother always told me growing up is don't share in someone else's offense. Because a lot of times we don't actually know the totality of the story. And if we're just sharing in someone else's pain, they're going to only tell us their side of the story. The scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 7, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Have you ever been in a situation like this where somebody tells you their story where they were offended and they were bothered about something and then you just dive right in with them? You'd be like, what? What did they, what, what did they say? What did they do? Oh, man. And they call themselves a Christian. <laughs> and then maybe a couple days later, a couple weeks later, you somehow get privy to the other side of the story. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that part of it. And then what did you do? You kind of felt silly for how offended that you were. <clears throat> and here, hey, if we, if we only hear half of any story, it's easy for us to dive in with someone else's offense. But here, we don't have enough time and we don't have enough emotional energy just to dive in with everybody's offense. And man, you, if you're on social media, you got to be careful of this. You know, there's like posts and this post and they're like, I can't believe this. And people are just diving in both feet to someone else's offense. The scripture says, Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So we don't want to live a life of stumbling, stumbling into sin based on our desires. And then we certainly don't want to live a life of stumbling based on something someone intended to do to hurt somebody or something unintentionally somebody did. So we need to avoid stumbling based on our lust, based on our desires, and, and then offense that would come our way based on what somebody chose to do or didn't choose to do. We need to overlook those things overlook it but how did naaman get get into this place where he was so offended verse 11 says naaman was angry and he went away saying behold i thought now listen the road to offense is paved with i thought I thought they should do this and I thought they should do this and I thought that they should say this and I thought this. And then what's going to happen many times? They just don't. They don't. They don't do what you think that they should do. Any married people out there want to risk an amen on that one? Well, I think that they, I think they should be like my mom. I tell you what my mom made on Thanksgiving. That's not your mama. That's your wife. 
I thought. Got to be careful. We got to be careful with our I thoughts. The road to offense is paved with I thought. So what's, what's, what's going on with Nathan, Naaman here? What, he's, he's struggling. He's having a difficult time. Now, we know the story is going to turn out good. Otherwise, I wouldn't be reading it. <clears throat> so what is it, though, that God saw in Naaman's heart? That of all the other lepers, in and around this time, this is the only one that got healed. So the story continues in verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Do you hear how offended he is? And now he's basically he's saying, my country is better than your country anyway. The rivers in my country are cleaner than the Jordan. Who wants to go dip in the muddy Jordans? Just offended. Verse 13. But his servants came near to him instead. So maybe Naaman calmed down a little bit. Wasn't saying anything. Was, you know, done venting all of his anger and about the situation that he didn't get his way, that he didn't get his due, what he thought he should get. And said to him, my father, is it a great word the prophet has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So what is this servant? I mean, I mean, name is getting it from servants left, right, and center today. He's getting Elisha's servant, then his own servant. What is he basically saying to Naaman? Is this really a big deal? Like just to go, wouldn't it be better just to go wash and be made whole? Isn't it better to choose healing over offense? Isn't it better to choose freedom over being angry? The, the King James version of it says that Naaman was wroth. Now, Naaman could have just stayed with his offense and his anger. And there's no indication that he would have been healed if he had just stayed angry. And the, oh, this is just God's providential moment that Naaman is going to be healed regardless. No, Naaman is cooperating with the will of God. We're going to see it here in a second. His servant said, hey, Naaman, is it really a big deal? All he said was go wash. So he went down dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child and he was clean. Man, I'd much rather choose healing than offense. The woman, she was in a desperate situation, a place of despair. God was able to to bring an outward focus out of her, some generosity out of her. God was able to get Naaman over his offense so that he could get healing to him. Healed and whole. God wants us to be healed and whole. Man, I just want to cooperate with him. I don't want to be 
angry. And I don't want to be offended. I don't want to live an offense. I don't want to live my life constantly stumbling over something that somebody did to me that they shouldn't have done. And just stay there in my mind and stay stuck in that place of anger. Man, I want to wash and be clean. I want to humble myself to the things that God is asking me to do. I don't want to live in despair and I don't want to live in offense. Last verse, same place that we started. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's just pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word today. We are so thankful for what you're calling us to. That we can experience your healing, that we can experience wholeness on the inside of us. And Father, for maybe those of us in here today, or maybe have these feelings of quitting and these feelings of giving up, these feelings of despair. Lord, I pray that you show us people in our lives that we can be a blessing to. Someone that we can pray for, somebody that we can give to, somebody that we can help to pull us out of our situation and to pull us into your generosity. And Father God, forgive us for being offended. For forgive us, Lord, for being angry about the treatment that we didn't get or we should have got. Lord, we don't want to live in that place of offense and anger. We want to live in a place of healing. We just thank you for that today, Lord. We thank you for your healing power. We let go of the offense and we receive your healing. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca.